everyone. Welcome to the 398th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have a lot to talk about this week. We are going to be talking about oof, layoffs at Amazon, probably in the device business. We're also going to be talking about IBM getting rid of its Watson IoT platform. We've got some Upgrades, though, coming for Bluetooth and for Wi-Fi. We'll be talking about that, plus a new Wi-Fi product from Wise. And we've got a bunch of renewable news, or rather energy harvesting news, with an acquisition and a company going public. And we've got some updates on the smart home related to Nest speakers, smart plugs with matter, and locks that are not going to get matter. So, all of this and more. Plus, Kevin is going to review the Apple TV 4K for y'all and talk about what it means for people with smart homes. We're also going to hear from our sponsor this week, which is Arm. And we're going to hear from our guest this week, Michelle Polino, who is a principal analyst at Forrester. She's going to be talking about predictions for next year in IoT, edge networking, and some connectivity. So, it's a jam-packed show. Let's get it started. But first, a message for one of our sponsors. This week's sponsor is Silicon Labs. Silicon Labs is a leader in secure, intelligent wireless technology for a more connected world. Their integrated hardware and software platform, intuitive development tools, and robust support make them an ideal long-term partner in building advanced industrial, commercial, home, and life applications. Silicon Labs makes it easy for developers to solve complex wireless challenges throughout the product lifecycle and get to market quickly with innovative solutions that transform industries, grow economies, and improve lives. Learn more at scilabs.com. All right. Oh, it's getting grim out there for the economy. Amazon, there is a report in the New York Times from one of their Seattle-based reporters that Amazon has started cutting their jobs. They are cutting these jobs in their devices business, HR, and other areas. We're probably most focused here on people getting cuts in Madam A. We talked about this, I think, in the newsletter, but last week a report came out saying that the Madam A business lost $5 billion last year, which is a lot of money. Yikes. I think I wrote in the newsletter when I was talking about this is y'all should expect more ads as Amazon seeks to gain gain money, <laughs> seeks to earn money <laughs> on business unit. So yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. I mean, I still wonder, and this is more of a holistic question about the industry as a whole, how many of these home hub type devices and set-top boxes and such actually make money, you know, from the hardware sales, I'm thinking most of them probably lose money. If I think about things like Home Assistant, you know, they've been so far, like that's an open source project, right? And so mm -hmm. their hardware is probably not designed as a revenue generator. And if you look at the price of that hardware, it's more expensive than some of these others, like a Nest or a, right. a Amazon device. So you're probably right. The goal has always been well, the goal has kind of shifted. Originally, I think it was to sell more devices, and now it's time to get into this services thing. Like, and originally they wanted to be like the OS of the smart home, and they were like, oh, we'll be this magical platform. It hasn't turned out that way, though. No. I, I was just surprised. I mean, we knew last week that they were having going through some job cuts over at Amazon. I was just really surprised to see them in, in the Madam A area, as well as their Luna cloud gaming. That actually doesn't surprise me because it's not a it's not a major contender there. True. 
The other thing to know is Amazon is okay losing money on things. Oh, yeah. They will be just fine. I mean, like, for a long time, losing money on something as long as they have their, their flywheel. So as long as it contributes to their flywheel of data and such that helps them launch new products and gain more ground. Now, it is questionable if Madame A actually has contributed much to the flywheel. So maybe that's the deal. Anyway, all right. Other things going away are <laughs> IBM's Watson IoT platform service on IBM Cloud. That is going away as of December 1st, 2023. So you have a year to stop using IBM's Watson IoT platform, which, okay. And this follows on the heels of Google getting rid of their IoT core platform, which happened actually just a few weeks back as well. And I think the issue is no one's using it. And it's really hard with IoT. A lot of the cloud implementations, it starts small and then hopefully gets big, but it may stay small. And then what you also have is you've got to keep the cost down so people can pay for it even on like this a one-time sale of hardware devices, right? Because not every device has subscription. So we're talking about a lot of just tiny revenue. And if you don't scale that, I bet it's really hard to maintain. Yeah. And, and you're right. You know, it starts out really small from the, say, the customer side, the research development and, and services. That is not cheap to put that all together so that you're ready for people to just scale up and, you know, jump on board and so on. So there's a lot of money sunk in this stuff. And I guess they figure, you know, they ran the numbers and like, it's going to take till 2035 just to break even on this, on the current investment, maybe. It's not terribly surprising. You know, back in 2015, I remember when IBM launched the Watson IoT cloud and they said that they were going to invest three billion over the next, you know, at the time, four years. So up through 2019, they hired a, a woman to take over this. They built like a thing and I want to say like a innovation platform or whatever in Germany all for this. And it's just a no. <laughs> Well, it's a big bet. You know, it's it was, a big it bet. It was a big bet. And IoT just didn't pan out the way everyone thought it would. And, you know, I should probably write about that. <laughs> well, well, well you, you do that. If you need a starting thought, my concern is that some of the bigger players are going away. Google, now IBM. You're seeing a lot of consolidation and people just disappearing. It's got to be tough for the smaller companies, too. I don't want to end up with, like, just a few key platforms in this space. And I'm worried that's what's happening. Well, that's kind of where we're at. We have still like Twilio is a smaller kind of platform play. There's still Ayla out there. But like, you know, we lost GE's Predicts. I don't know if you mm -hmm. remember that. That was their enterprise IoT stuff. They didn't predict very well. Oh, so sorry. So sorry. Bad. I need more coffee. Oh, <laughs> anyway. All right. Enough of talking about things that are bad and going away. Let's talk about some advancements. The Bluetooth SIG, the Bluetooth Special Interest Group, this is the trade association responsible for the Bluetooth standard. They are announcing that they are going to build a spec development project to define the operation of Bluetooth low energy in the 6 gigahertz frequency band. That mm. means... The 6E band that Wi-Fi is using, Bluetooth's coming for it. Dun, dun, dun. Bluetooth I, can, you, can you blame them? I mean, it's, no. it's free, unlicensed spectrum. Why wouldn't they? Yeah. And Bluetooth and Wi- Just so in case y'all are unaware, Bluetooth already works with Wi-Fi in the 2.4 gigahertz band. So, you know, this is not new that they're coming after a band. If it's unlicensed, that's what you do. They also said they're going to look at other 
unlicensed mid-band spectrum, but the 6 gigahertz band is what's out there and named. And it makes sense because you could build an integrated Wi-Fi Bluetooth chip that uses both 2.4 and 6 gigahertz going forward if, if Bluetooth makes you know, gets gains ground here. It, it also makes sense because Bluetooth is a, a personal area network more so than a, a wide area network, which means that the spectral attenuation issues that happen with six gigahertz. So it's, it's harder for six gigahertz to pass through walls and that sort of thing. It's closer distance kind of spectrum. That's going to work really well for Bluetooth. And Bluetooth's excited because it'll give them lower latency. They could actually move more data over that span. And yeah, so we'll see. They're going to work on this. Don't expect anything for a while, but good to know. All right. Moving right along to things that <laughs> I didn't think we'd see for a while. We've talked about Wi-Fi 7 a couple times recently and kind of were like, not poo-pooed it, but like, guys, really, 6E is really just getting started. Most devices don't have it. You got to give it three to five years before it's firmly entrenched. And already we've had chip makers saying, hey, we've got Wi-Fi 7. We're showing demos. And I'm sure we're going to see them at CES in January. But TP-Link already has the world's first complete Wi-Fi 7 networking solution. So they've got a router and access points that use Wi-Fi 7. So, I mean, yes, there's benefits, and we'll get into that in a second, but I would not recommend anybody go out and rush to grab this. I mean, what's the point? You don't have Wi-Fi 7 on your devices. Exactly. It's possible that... In a mesh system, the wireless backhaul or the way the access points communicate would benefit. But this is just silly, I think, for them to make a big hoo-ha. I'm with you. So some things to know about this system. This is going to also use Wi-Fi 6E, or rather the 6 gigahertz band as part of this. Does that, I mean, are we going to have, so like now that we're going to have Wi-Fi 7, should we just assume that 6E gets sucked into Wi-Fi 7? I'm going to assume Well, that. that gets into why I'm saying don't buy this, because this is going to be one of those, um, you know, remember you used to get the newer routers when we were going to 802.11n, and they'd be like, pre-N certified, it's going to work with N, so buy it now. Well, some of them didn't, you know, because the spec changed or the hardware couldn't be rejiggered or whatever. Will it? Probably, but I wouldn't. I'd wait and see. Yeah, the Wi-Fi Alliance has not announced a certification for 7 yet. So this is pre-cert. So the biggest deal for the switch from 6 to 7 is going to be, again, more capacity. It's going to use higher modulation schemes, and it is going to be optimized for video. So that's going to be important for gaming, streaming, other stuff like that. Yeah, not not smart homey stuff. You know, maybe entertainment, sure. And and you know, I'm not saying I wouldn't jump onto this when it's ready, when it's certified and the spec is out. I'm saying, you know, do you need it now? I would think not. Even for 4K video, I mean, 35 megabits per second is typically enough for a really solid bitrate on 4K video. So, unless this is prepping for the next generation of video like 8K, which in fairness, AMD came out with their new graphics card and they support high frame rate 8K video, even though people don't have 8K TVs. So maybe they're just positioning like AMD. Yeah. I mean, we're not supposed to get the formal cert till like 2024, according to the Alliance. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. dear Lord. Anyway. Oh, yeah, I, they, I just looked, they, they mentioned, you know, multi-gig entertainment, such as gaming 8K AR VR. So yeah. they're already throwing 8K around. I know y'all love y'all's Wi-Fi, so just throwing that out there. This exists. I mean, if you really want to 
be on the cutting edge, then sure, go for it. But I just don't see it being necessary just yet. And if you want this, you're going to be paying a lot. So the fanciest quad band mesh Wi-Fi 7 system is going to be basically $1,200 for a two-pack. The tri-band is going to be $1,000 for a two-pack. And if you just want one of the quad bands, you're looking at $700. Those are going to ship in the first quarter of 2023. So, yikes. All right. Let's say you want to buy one today and you want to buy a really cheap Wi-Fi 6 mesh router. Guess who has you covered? You'll never guess. It's wise. This is not a Wi-Fi 6E. This is just Wi-Fi 6. And you can buy a Wi-Fi 6 mesh router. You can buy a two-pack for $173.99 or just one for $93.99. And I'm not going to recommend this. And the reason, I mean, I'm sure it's going to be fine fine for a thing, but like... I mean, right off the bat, you've got the, the, the Google Nest Wi-Fi Pro, which is not much more expensive. And although it didn't wow me compared to my Euro 6s... And some people are having real issues with it. They are. Uh, I think particularly with fiber connections, um, their download speeds are limited to like 50 megabits per second, even though they have a gigabit connection. But you have a fiber connection and you're not... Excited. I do, and I did not have any issues. Okay. Then again, I connected directly to my ONT. Maybe those people aren't. I do not know. Okay. There's no other router involved. Um, but two things. You can spend just a little bit more and get the 6E compatibility from Google. The other thing I'd say is they well, says 1,500 square feet of whole home coverage. I'm going to reiterate what I said last week or the week before with the Google Nest Wi-Fi Pro units. If you have a multi-level dwelling, you probably want one access point on each level because that 1,500 square feet claimed by Wise, it was 2,200 square feet with Google with one point, one router, it just was not up to snuff at all in, in my home. So, And I will say, okay, this is actually a reason to possibly look at this is they like Google, aren't charging for security features as part of this. So you get the ability to manage your Wi-Fi network, you get guest network, and you get a FireDome is the company that's providing their cyber threat prevention services. FireDome is a network management software for consumer devices. And that actually is pretty compelling. Mm -hmm. So I'll give that the, oh, all right. That's neat. Yeah. Uh, one other limitation, and it's the same limitation as uh, the Google Nest Wi-Fi Pro. It only supports up to one gigabit speeds from your ISP. So if you have something faster than that, you don't want this or the Google because you're not going to use what you're paying for. Right. And they're going to launch next year. So maybe you're looking at this and you're like, hot diggity, but what about 6E? They're going to launch a 6E mesh router and that'll be their Mesh Router Pro, they're going to launch that next year. And that's going to be $273.99 for a two-pack. So $274 for a two-pack and $174 for a one-pack. So throwing that out there for y'all. That'll support 2.5 gigabits per second. So that's a little bit more. And it covers 2,000 square feet of, per, of coverage per router. But your mileage may vary. Okay, 
That's what's new in the Wi-Fi routing spectrum 6 gigahertz world. Yay. Let's talk about renewable. Well, let's talk about energy harvesting. It's not really renewables. I I, I throw it all in the renewable category because it's, it's better for the environment. But y'all know that like if we're ever going to get to a trillion sensors or whatever absurd number we're thinking about, we cannot have batteries or wires everywhere. So I focus a lot on companies who are doing energy harvesting. And one of those, Nowie, and we've had Nowie on the podcast in the past, they have just gotten acquired by Nexperia. And Nexperia is a chip company. And they are basically buying Nowie to add energy harvesting technology to their power management chips. So they make power management chips. And what this transaction signals to me is that finally energy harvesting is becoming a large enough and a significant enough market that a traditional semiconductor company is like, yeah, bring this puppy in. We want to be able to add that to our portfolio and just offer it seamlessly to people so they don't have to go out to a specialty vendor and get it. That's pretty good. I think that's a big deal. It does not give us a purchase price probably wasn't a lot. And that deal is already closed. So Nowie is now part of Nexperia. And that's good news for everybody who's like really excited about energy harvesting. Also, in related news, Ocean, which has forever made energy harvesting chips, they use their own proprietary wireless technology to communicate because it's lower power. Nowie has used Bluetooth. But Ocean has decided to go public via a specialty purpose acquisition company, so a SPAC. And that company is called Parabellum Acquisition Corp. And if they do this, they'll end up going public on the New York Stock Exchange. And I don't know when that's going to happen. We've got to wait for the deal to be complete. But Ocean is also an energy harvesting company. And basically, this deal either signals like They're trying to get out before the market turns to total crap, which is possible. But it also is a good indication if they do well, I'm going to keep an eye on it so I can see how people are looking at energy harvesting from the financial sector. And Ocean has a cool deal, I should mention, with Aruba Networks. Aruba has put their technology in their Wi-Fi access points in corporate places to help connect these energy harvesting devices to the regular IT network. So that's a pretty big deal. Okay. Moving right along, Nest. What's going on there, Kevin? Yeah, so 9to5Google last month found some code in the Chromium code base, which is what Google uses to develop all of its code for all of its products, Chromebooks, Pixel phones, the Nest line of products, etc. They reported that they found information or mention of two new smart speakers that will run Google's Fuchsia software. For those who don't know, Fuchsia has actually been pushed out, I think, to the latest Google Nest Hub. Mm-hmm. It has. For the Gen 2 is running Fuchsia. Google is kind of getting away from what it used to use. It used to use its Cast software, uh, like Chromecast, etc. They're switching over to, to Fuchsia. So the two new smart speakers will also be running Fuchsia. Interestingly, a code commit was added this month to add a UWB driver to at least one of the smart speakers in progress. Don't know frequency. I don't know anything about the radio technology they're going to use. We won't know that maybe until we see an FCC filing for testing, but it sure looks like at least one new Nest speaker will have UWB. That's 
interesting. I mean, they're saying, hey, it's kind of like the Apple implementation. Maybe they'll, you can hand off um, YouTube music from your phone to your Nest speaker with this over wire, you know, wirelessly just by touching it nearby. I think it's more of a smart home kind of approach uh, that they're going to go with here, but we will see. Yes. And like I said, when I wrote about UWB just forever ago, hugely beneficial technology for determining context like location and device awareness. Problematic because there could be various different implementations of UWB, so there's not an interoperability layer there yet. So HomeKit UWB is going to be different from Google's UWB. That's not awesome, I don't think. Speaking of interoperability, we've got some matter news for y'all. Good news, bad news. Maras is launching its first Matter Smart Plug. Yay! Um, this is $25 for the pair, and that's pretty good. The $25 per pair was for the first 500 people. I am actually ordering right now a two-pack, and it's cost me $35. Oh, boo! Okay. Well, that's okay. For two smart plugs, including Matter Support, hey, that's still a good deal. I mean, typically a Maros product is not going to be as expensive. It's it's not in the wise price range, but it's not as expensive as, say, a traditional HomeKit product or, or Google product or Amazon product. So it's still a decent deal. And since it's going to, well, since it supports matter, I'm going to grab two. Yeah. And you've got the Maras uh, garage door open. So yeah, which is not a matter thread type thing. It's just Wi-Fi Bluetooth, but it works really well. It cost me like $38. I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah, and I feel really good because, you know, with the, the matter security kind of layer in there, I feel pretty good about buying kind of things that not that Maras is a no name brand, but like brands that I have not dealt with as much in the past. How's that? That's fair. One quick point, though, about this particular smart plug or smart plugs. Some have multiple outlets. In fact, I have a Maros smart outlet. It's a dual outlet unit. These are single outlets only. So you're not expanding. Yeah. And they're squares. They're not the rectangles. So I worry that it's going to cover two of my outlets. You know what I'm saying? I do wonder. Um, and I should know as soon as they arrive. They do say it's a smart mini plug. All right. Well, come back to us next week on that. All right. Other matter news. Apple home key smart lock from Schlage that Kevin liked a lot. That is the I Schlage. Still do. Yeah. The <laughs> Schlage Encode Plus is not going to get upgraded to matter. The company is going to produce a matter lock, but it is not going to upgrade its existing models, for which we are like, ah. Yeah. That's, that's also going to be really freaking complicated to buy a lock for a while. Ugh. So I would say, look, it's a good lock. If you're home kit, you don't need matter, you don't think you want matter, go for it. But otherwise, Yale Assure Gen 2, or if you have a Yale Assure 1, but if you're if you're buying a new lock, I would do something like that. Level has said they're going to update their locks to matter as well. So if you, you know, would rather have that because it's internal to the door, you don't get that big battery case and radio case on your door. Um that's a good option too. But Note that Level does have two locks, only one of, or actually they have three locks, but of their higher end locks, the Level Lock Plus is the home kit version. They have a, a Level Lock Touch that is not home kit. It's very confusing. Locks are awful. Moving right along. Okay. Let's talk about less awful things. Let's talk about the Apple TV 4K. Yeah. This is interesting to me for two reasons. One, Apple really started with their Apple TV, oh gosh, 
uh, eight years ago, and it was taking three to four years for them to upgrade with new products. Maybe it's been 10 years because this last iteration only took two years. And I'd say this is a pretty big upgrade. And what's interesting, even more so, is that besides it having more power and more functionality and support for more 4K video content, it's video content formats, I should say, there is an option for a thread radio. So this can be a thread border router. And the whole thing costs at least $50 less than the last model, which is not something that happens often in Apple land. Almost never. (laughs) Almost never. Um, I should reiterate something I brought up when this device was announced, and I verified it then and I re-verified it during my review period. If you want a thread border router, you need to pay $149.99 for the higher configuration. Um, that gives you the thread radio and that gives you double the storage, so 128 gigabytes of storage for your games or downloaded content. The other one, the, the Wi-Fi only one, so no thread radio inside, also no Ethernet in that one, um, will work for HomeKit, and it will support Matter over Wi-Fi, but it cannot be a thread border router because it doesn't have the thread radio. So a very important point there. I know we want to focus on the smart home, but unfortunately, the way Matter is rolling out right now, there's no way for me to easily test this as a thread border router or with Matter devices. So I'm going to have to come back to that in the coming weeks or month or so. Um, That's unfortunate, but that's just a timing thing, you know? Yeah, like you're going to see the first devices that you could even test this with would probably be the Eve devices because they're going to get an update on December 12th. Correct. So we'll look for that because obviously the the, the Muros things, if you get them, are going to be And they Wi-Fi. won't be here until January 31st, unfortunately. Oh. So, yeah. Oh, well, then we won't I tell you next week. Okay. We'll Kevin's like, I'm, I'm done ordering. Okay. So again, from a smart home perspective, there's not much to say other than because Apple bumped the silicon inside from the A12 Bionic to their A15 Bionic, and that is the chip that they custom make for the iPhone 13 product line. It's a fast, peppy little set-top box in general, and I notice it with my HomeKit Secure video cameras, my doorbell and my garage camera. Um, the, the feed pops up quite quickly. You know, once the feeds are going, they always looked fine on the old one, but everything everything seems to pop up quicker. The, the interface is faster. The games launch faster. The apps launch faster. Um, but even, even with those, with that speed, I, I don't think it's worth an upgrade if you dropped 199 or more on the previous gen Apple TV 4K. If you have an older one and you skipped last year's model, or I guess it was two years ago, yeah, this makes sense. And then you're not going to pay an arm and a leg. You're not going to pay 199 like people have over the last two years for their Apple TV. You can get this for 130 or 150. So it's an upgrade choice for somebody who doesn't have last year's model. Or has last year's and wants a thread border router. Yeah. I think that's that's key. Again, I cannot tell you how that works because of obvious reasons that we just went through. So but you know, it's great as a set top box. I we love it. And my family notices the quality improvements in the speed and the new HDR ten plus uh, format being supported, which was not on the old one. Amazon Prime Video is, uses HDR ten. So we noticed it right away there. Cool. All right. So 
There you go, guys. Maybe that's on your Christmas list. Maybe it should be. By the way, next week, we will be publishing our gift guide. La, 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 la. Or fa la, 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 as it were. Um, it's also going to be Thanksgiving, but we'll put out the podcast on Thursday, as we always do. So you can listen to it while preparing your turkey dinner, should you like. Okay, now it is that section of the show where we hear from y'all. It is the IoT Podcast Hotline, sponsored by Silicon Labs. Silicon Labs Wi-Fi portfolio is designed specifically for the IoT, where multi-protocol RF performance, ultra-low power consumption, and fast time to market are critical. Learn more about Silicon Labs' low-power Wi-Fi hardware, software, tools, and development kits at scilabs.com. All righty. Let's see. This week, we're actually pulling an email. This is an email from John Jacobs about Matter. I'm going to read it for y'all. I just learned from the podcast about the annual Matter certification fees. What intrigued me about the Matter initiative was the hope that it would decouple IoT hardware from the service model to the extent that a Matter IoT device could and would still have basic functionality in absence of the costly ongoing support for a manufacturer that could no longer provide service support from the cloud. All of those matter-related fees would appear to dash those hopes. Say it ain't so. Is this another way a manufacturer can plan to obsolete perfectly functioning IoT that they previously sold to make way for new but equivalent hardware they want to sell to boost their revenue? Or, alternatively, would these matter fees give rise to more subscription fees to use matter devices you've quote-unquote purchased? More of a hardware-as-a-service model. So, The bottom line question would be, what's going to happen to Matter devices when the payment of their annual certification fee stops? John, this is an excellent question. Awesome question. I was like, oh, John, look at how smart you are. And the answer is actually a good one for us. So don't freak out. The answer is no. So if you want to keep selling your device in stores, you must keep paying the fee to use that logo. So This means you have to have that whole big, fancy adopter-level membership. That is needed for you to own and sell your certified product. And to keep selling it, yes, you have to pay that $500 annual re-up fee. But if you no longer sell the product, you can maintain support for the products in the field and not be a Matter member. So if they're no longer a member, they shouldn't use the logo anymore in their box. So basically what it means is if you want to sell the devices with the logo, you got to be a member and you got to keep paying the fee. If you're a company like, let's say you're like Insteon and your Insteon server was matter certified, but now you're going out of business and you're no longer selling products. Boom. You don't have to worry about that, but you can still support that old gear if you would like. Could is the keyword. There's no requirement, obviously. I can't say it gives us any additional safety net from product support, but... At least they still can support it. Yes. And along this line of who can do what with matter, last week we had a question about someone asking about DIY devices. And that's actually what prompted this question. And we got it kind of wrong. We said that you could build it and you could probably operate it in your home, but you may not be able to let other people work with it and that sort of thing. And it might not be able to join the matter network, but that's not true. In the matter spec, and I apologize for not reading this. Section (laughs) 5.5. Yes. You can build your own homegrown matter device. You can use the code, build the product. You cannot bring it to market as a matter certified product or market it as such. But if you share it with others, you do have to warn them that it is not a fully trusted device. So what's going to happen is 
if the the commission device doesn't if it fails the device attestation process, the commissioner can choose to either continue the commissioning or terminate it. And so what's going to happen is when you try to provision a non-matter certified device that uses the matter code, it'll be like, hey, this is not a fully trusted device. Do you want to continue? And you'll be like, it's kind of like on the internet when you like the site has problems. Do you want to go? And you're like, yes, I do. Again, the keyword is should, <laughs> not could, but should, because the spec says the commissioner should warn the user that it's not a fully trusted device and may give the user the choice to authorize or deny the commissioning. So giving the user the choice to continue along and use it or not. So it's actually kind of good for the DIY folks. If you trust the device maker. That's the key. You just have to trust your device maker. Yeah. So that's that's good news. So we got two good news stories coming out of the matter spec here. If, you know, I'm pro. All right. So thank you for your questions. And remember that if you would like to be entered to win this month's prize, which is a Twinkly's light set, woo, you should give us a call at 512-623-7424 and you will be entered to win. We're also going to enter in John because he did send us a question email. You can do that too, but it's much less fun than hearing y'all's voices on the podcast. So I think that concludes this segment of the show, but please stay tuned for Michelle Polino, a principal analyst at Forrester, talking about predictions for the coming year in IoT and Edge, and a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is ARM. Hey, everyone, we are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. And this week's sponsor is ARM. And today we're going to be talking with Thomas Lorenzer, who is Director of General Purpose Compute, IoT, at ARM. Okay, so what is ARM doing in the IoT? At ARM, we are focused sharply on empowering our partners and the software developer ecosystem to excel in unlocking the opportunities of the IoT. Essentially, we are focused on three key areas. Firstly, at ARM, the ARM ecosystem has the largest computational footprint on the planet. Our partners shipped over 29 billion ARM-based chips in 2021. Around 70% of these were designed for IoT and embedded applications. This computational footprint is rapidly evolving to match the workloads of tomorrow. Secondly, we believe rapid, innovative software development is key to the next phase of IoT. We are razor focused on enabling developers for offerings like ARM virtual hardware. And finally, we are very committed to standardization initiatives driving the advancement of the IoT. Excellent. Can you tell us a bit more about ARM's initiatives aimed at driving standardization where it matters in the IoT? Sure. For example, at the IoT edge and endpoints, there's a very diverse set of use cases driving diverse set of requirements into IoT platforms, both from a hardware and software perspective. Software development requires an alignment across the software stack all the way up to the cloud. However, some of those software efforts are non-differentiating for our ecosystem partners. The standardization efforts of these non-differentiating aspects of the stack allow the ecosystem to reuse common parts while focusing their resources and energy on differentiation. ARM initiatives such as PSA Certified, Project Cassini, and Project Centauri we're all designed to address these critical challenges that our partners are facing across security and software development to enable faster development at scale. And how is ARM supporting efforts such as Matter? As many of you will already know, the Connectivity Standards Alliance, which ARM has collaborated with for many years, recently released the Meta 1.0 standard and certification program. 
At ARM, we are very closely working with the Alliance to ensure that the ARM ecosystem is ready to support product developers in building these devices, including a project to explore the integration of ARM virtual hardware into the Meta CI CD infrastructure. This will ensure that product developers can instantly access a scalable virtual test environment that maps directly to the wide ecosystem of IoT computing platforms. Stay tuned for more developments in this area. Excellent. So where can I go to find out more about ARM? Read our latest blog on arm.com forward slash IoT hyphen standards for more information. This is arm.com forward slash IoT hyphen standards. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is Michelle Polino, who is a principal analyst at Forrester. Hello, Michelle. How are you today? Hey, Stacey. It's great to be here to chat with you today. I am really excited because we're talking about predictions for 2023. So broadly, talk to us about what you cover at Forrester and what you spend your time on. Yeah, certainly. So um, I've been with Forrester about 15 years. I'm a principal analyst, as you mentioned here, and I focus my research on a variety of different types of technologies, such as Internet of Things, edge computing solutions, and some of the types of networking infrastructure that's powering some of those transformative experiences, as well as critical use cases that are making their way into the enterprise arena, at least in my world, very much enterprise focused and on, uh, industrial focused as well, in terms of how you implement and deploy these solutions to address use cases, different kinds of scenarios and business opportunities. What I should say about the actual predictions I will be talking about is each year at Forrester, the analysts that focus on some of these areas get together. And so some of the themes and trends that I'll be talking about and the prediction I'll be talking about actually represent the thought processes for many analysts here at Forrester in terms of, okay, what are the top five or the key predictions that we see with respect to edge, IoT, and networking? We have put together this document to really highlight the, the kind of triad of those technologies and what we think is happening as we look to 2023. I love it. So let's go first with cities, simply because I feel like during COVID, I feel like we saw a real retrenchment in like public infrastructure spending and the smart city conversations that I had been having. And up until that point, they were very much focused on, you know, smart lighting, a little bit of traffic kind of efforts, but very still nascent. And now it feels like they're coming back with a vengeance. So what are you seeing with IoT and smart city implementations? Yeah, it's interesting. So from the perspective of smart cities, I mean, having uh, all of us been living through the the kind of pandemic era and thinking about how to get folks back into cities and what sorts of IoT scenarios are going to be the focus as organizations try to get workers back into the offices in those cities and get visitors back into the cities, as well as the citizens that live there and the types of services that they need. And like you were mentioning, you know, there are so many different types of smart city use cases. You know, you can think about it from traffic and parking to transportation to public safety and municipal kinds of Wi-Fi capabilities, as well as things that are tied to waste management or buildings and energy and sort of those sustainability kinds of initiatives that are starting to come up as well. But I think what's really interesting as we start thinking about the smart city that is, you know, kind of evolving as we look to 2023 
is that certainly those use cases that I that you were mentioning and that I touched on with respect to you know transportation and logistics or reducing carbon emissions and addressing sustainability or enabling Wi-Fi and 5G in certain cities as you know as appropriate and and you know that sort of thing those types of initiatives are certainly being pursued and in many cases what we're seeing is that there's government funding so for the in the state side you know we had the nearly 90 billion dollar infrastructure investment and Jobs Act that is used to power some of those solutions, whether it be for smart lighting and infrastructure or traffic management or energy monitoring types of investments. So there's funding that's happening to really power some of these smart city types of initiatives. But what I think is the important piece to recognize is that our prediction as we look to 2023 is that all of those investments aren't necessarily going to be good enough to lure people back into cities, whether they be visitors, whether they be workers, whether they be citizens, especially those big cities that have actually been dealing with a lot of crime in there. And so what we think is that city leaders are going to really focus on building public trust again in some of those use cases around public safety and security and surveillance that had certainly been a concern to many, many individuals. But now, in order to really address this need to get folks back into cities to work there, live there, visit there, there's going to be more focus on what use cases can help address those types of opportunities around things like different types of security applications, security um, capabilities, tying in with emergency response capabilities, those types of things. That's really interesting because I, I know that I've seen things like Austin and I think it was either Palo Alto or maybe San Jose approving the use of like license plate readers, for example, when beforehand they had they had been absolutely against it. We also saw San Francisco looking at like changing some of the regulations around accessing private security cameras. Yes. You know, I think what you just mentioned is a really important piece. There's the, you know, do we want to do this at, at a public level? And two, how do we make citizens and folks to feel comfortable that this is not going to be used for, you know, negative purposes and, and things like that? But but ultimately sort of that balancing act, right, between we need to be safe and secure when we're in a city and, and certain locations, you know, probably have more need for that than others. But ultimately, how do you make citizens feel comfortable that the what's being done with that information is also going to not impact their, you know, privacy issues and, and things like that? And is this more of an American phenomenon? And I ask because I feel like when I talk to people in Europe, they're very focused on environmental sensing. So air quality is a big issue there. So is there a geographic differentiation about like what's happening in cities that we should pay attention to? Well, I actually think underlying all of this is that more environmental sustainability focus that's happening just in general. So what we're seeing with respect to more regulatory requirements driving the need for certain types of air quality, reducing carbon emissions, being more energy efficient and, and you know, using resources in a, uh, more efficiently and effectively, water, power, lighting, those are happening overall as well. And I believe ultimately one of the big, you know, things that's also going to be a, a challenge that folks are facing as we go into the winter months is dealing with, well, what about the cost of 
energy, power, lighting, right, and and fuel and, and all of these types of resources. So cities obviously have an element that they have to think about with respect to addressing sustainability goals that may be by 2030, this is our carbon emissions goal, or here's a regulatory requirement we're in the hook for, or enabling the city to differentiate itself to say, guess what, we're being very proactive in our sustainability initiatives, which is appealing to very much, you know, some of the certain segments of the population. This is something very appealing for bringing that to light to say how my city is different. So that's happening kind of under the surface as well. And there can be differences, like you said, in terms of prioritization. It's not necessarily one or the other. All right. And speaking of the environment, you have a very disconcerting prediction on here that, that I, I just hate. I hate it. You talk about stranding customers with an additional 350 million IoT bricks. And we are super familiar with the concept of a company going out of business and cloud services shutting down for their device and thus it becoming unusable over time. Can you talk a little bit about what's driving this? What types of bricks will I have in my home or business going forward? So, yeah, so the basis for this prediction, it, it is a global prediction, right? It's not just one region. So that's one point to make for the 350 million IoT brick devices um, that we believe are going to kind of be in addition to sort of the natural kind of evolution of devices, right? So this is in addition to the fact that we deal still have, you know, 3G sunsetting happening and we still have those devices, you know, that's already happening. And we believe that because of some of the, product evolution, especially products that, that are tied to things like fitness equipment, some of the smart home types of devices. You know, you saw an example of what could happen where Insteon kind of went away for a while and then they were rescued by folks that said, okay, we want to invest in that company so we don't stop having smart home capabilities. But not everybody's going to be that lucky. And so given the pressures around the challenges that we're facing with the economic headwinds, whatever you want to call those, you you know, if it's a true recession or, or whatever it may be, you know, there's going to be extra pressure on companies that are creating these smart devices and these connected environments. And ultimately, there's a, a, a need to invest in that in an ongoing basis, new features, proactive engagement opportunities, new kinds of product capabilities and support and, and those types of things. And so for some of these devices, like I said, we think some of the smart home kind of environments, some of the fitness equipment, E-bikes is another category that comes to mind in terms of, you know, we already know, especially um, we know in China, they've had millions of discarded bikes, uh, you know, after the kind of bike sharing boom and, and that sort of thing. And so this whole idea of now what happens to these devices in a bigger picture, there's real implications to that. So th that 350 million devices, some of them may be large, large pieces of equipment, machinery, others might be a bike or, you know, those types of fitness equipment types of things that folks are not either updating for various reasons Maybe the companies go out of business. Maybe, you know, the, the consumers in some cases decide it's not a priority so much, right, anymore, right? It might have been last year or two years ago, but now I'm not going down this path anymore. Yeah, so that's kind of what we think is coming around the bend with some of the categories of devices with IoT-enabled capabilities in them. Do you think that this is going to be a significant enough or a large enough number of brick devices that we'll see actual regulations or business changes because of it? Well, I think tying back to some of the issues around sustainability, I think that depending on how many of those devices, there could be impacts into e-waste 
So when you start thinking about the many millions of these these connected environments um, and the you know the elements in them, the batteries and and things like that that may have materials that are not great for the environment, there are certainly implications on that front. And in some cases, you may have regulatory requirements that will have to deal with some of that. Right? These big wastelands of bikes, they they're dealing with that in China, and they're putting into place different types of tax uh, requirements to deal with the you know bike graveyard it's almost like we used to have with the tires you know what what happens to all the tires those rubber tires that you know the, um, now we have that happening now with sort of these IOT enabled devices as well especially ones that have pervasive deployment but then ultimately may be going away for various reasons with the bikes you just throw them in the nearest body of water right um no that don't do that in other Bad news? I don't know. Security has gotten such a, like, we've gotten serious about it. I feel very confident that we are like worlds away from where we were back in 2016 when Mirai kind of woke everyone up. So some of the biggest buzzwords we're hearing are things like, ooh, confidential computing, zero trust computing. Can you talk to us about your your trend there? Because I think it's it's worth pointing out to people that these things are happening and coming, but they're not necessarily what people think they might be. Sure thing. So I was touching on the fact that you know this this predictions report touches on IoT environments, edge devices, and what we're finding is there's more and more of a fragmented array of connected assets, products, and processes that organizations are dealing with. And this is a challenge, right? Because you now have an issue that a developer, right, needs to create a security around these devices and the fragmented array of devices um, that may be in a, a retail environment, right? Like, for example, you may have the, the the smartphones and the devices I'm carrying around while I'm going through the store. You may have the the different types of digital signage there. You may have sensors on the doors. You may have different kinds of shop shopping experiences that are more kiosk driven as opposed to um, sales associate driven in terms of checkout experiences. So as you start thinking about just in sort of that example in a retail setting, you have fragmented arrays of devices and behind that, the many different kinds of networks that are connecting those devices, enabling those devices to work and be seamless. Now, what this means when you start thinking about the security is organizations have to really think comprehensively about security all the way from the devices and the networks and the many types of networks that may be using, right? You have cloud capabilities, you have VPNs, you have Wi-Fi, you may have, you know, IoT types of connectivity going on and different types of content delivery networks and edge environments. So you have all of that going on. And then you have to think about it from the perspective of the access and the information that's being captured from those connected devices and securing that. So the networks themselves, the devices, and then who gets access to that. And the idea is that organizations have to come up with a zero trust uh, framework, right? what we call it zero trust edge, because the edge, you know, edge includes many different devices, including IoT use cases, as well as these other edge environments I was talking about. And it's, you know, setting up a framework for how to ensure the security across the network connections, the smart devices, you know, the different attack surfaces now that are really appealing to hackers. You need to really think much more strategically about that. And the concept of zero trust edge frameworks are really going to help to address this, but it's not like a static kind of thing that you think about. It's an evolution of your security strategy that has to address 
all of those different components I talked about in those different environments to ensure zero trust edge is happening for the devices that you're connecting and the access to them that the individual stakeholders may have. Yes. And I also think it's important to note that this is part of, like you said, this is part of a larger strategy. And so we're still going to see investments in things like monitoring and network management. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. All of those elements are part of the aspect of understanding what's happening on my network or what's happening with that specific connected asset or device or what's happening to with, you know, who gets access to, to the, the information, right? So you have to have that, that type of, um, those types of uh, functions and features around the security capabilities. So ultimately, when you start thinking about implementing a zero trust edge framework and these types of solutions, you know, you're going to have, you may have some pieces of the puzzle already addressed in these environments. Environments, but you have to make sure that you've thought, uh, uh, you know, kind of across the board to ensure the security in those many networks in the various types of cloud and net edge and, you know, uh, infrastructure kinds of environments, as well as for the fragmented universe of connected assets and products. Got it. And then finally, let's talk about connectivity, because when I started doing this like 10 years ago, I was like, okay, we'll solve connectivity eventually. We're, we were in the midst of 3G to 4G transition. We were trying to figure out like what's a good low power wide area network for IoT devices that was inexpensive. And I feel like we're getting closer. So what are your big predictions around connectivity? One of the things that's happening with connectivity is, you know, the the promise of something like a seamless 5G network is not going to be available in most places for many years to come. You'll have capabilities around something like 5G and the benefits of those functions in use cases that can be deployed in certain cities or even a block by block basis. But one of the things that's happening is you have other options that are available. What happens in those rural environments? One of the predictions that's a little bit specific is, you know, seeing, okay, well, what about some of the satellite, the low earth out? Uh, low Earth orbit satellite capabilities that are targeted to addressing the needs of providing high speed bandwidth, low latency, broadband internet access to remote and rural environments, whether those be business customers or residential customers. One provider of such services, Starlink, you know, has tended to be focused more on the, the residential area. But ultimately, we believe that going into 2023, the company's going to shift pretty specifically and, and not that they're not going to be supporting residential customers, but they're going to make a very concerted focus on addressing the needs of business customers, because ultimately that's where a significant amount of the business market and the revenue streams potentially are. Um, so addressing the needs of folks in the retail sector, um, in industrial farming, in manufacturing and energy and utilities as examples. When you think about, you know, kind of the opportunities that the more low earth orbit satellite kind of connectivity, especially in those more remote regions that may not have that seamless higher speed bandwidth capability that 4G or 5G would allow, providing that into, you know, business environments. And the other thing that's kind of happening behind the scenes are folks are working from more remote locations and those remote locations are not necessarily in the cities, right? So the idea of the need for the services some, that somebody like a Starlink offers in those more remote locations is becoming more relevant as well. Yeah. And, you know, I, 
I'll bring this up because she's been a guest on the show before, but Starlink bought Swarm, which is an IoT-focused satellite connectivity platform. And they've got a pretty competitive price offering. So it does feel like we could see some convergence between those two businesses where historically we hadn't. Correct. And I think what's going to be interesting is how do the, how does, you know, in this example, you know, someone like Starlink, how do they connect the dots, right? So that businesses that are very worried about quality of service or impacts on revenues or critical apps and solutions to make sure that that sense of seamlessness, the sense of delivery at a certain quality experience level is going to be able to be implemented in those, you know, environments, right? And so there's a bit of an education process as well, not just to say, oh, I'm going after businesses, but you you then have to educate around the value proposition and the fact that the solution and the service is going to meet their needs, whether it be in those different industries or particular, you know, rural environments, that sort of thing. Got it. All right. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for your predictions. I hope some of them come true. Some of them I'm like, hmm, maybe we won't get there on that. I'm like, I don't need any more bricks in my life. So thank you so much. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And that concludes this week's episode of the Internet of Things podcast. Please join us next Thursday and don't forget to subscribe. And if you can't get enough IoT news, I would love for you to sign up at www.stacyoniot.com for our weekly IoT newsletter, where we explain all kinds of things that we don't even get to on the show. Once again, thank you for listening and please subscribe. Subscribe.